All right, everybody, we're going to talk about something that so far in this group, I am by far the least qualified to speak of. So uh, with with Amy, Stacy, and Kevin here, all people with, with phenomenal pharmacology backgrounds, this is going to be quite a good conversation. I'm going to act as an introducer of this information and show you how I organized it here. And uh, I did not even put this in a PowerPoint presentation because I knew anything I would do today would really be preliminary and kind of a first draft. So this is some of my understanding so far. I plan on learning a lot along with some of you listening or viewing this. But obviously, something like Ozempic and some other uh, drugs, primarily those GLP-1 agonists, are really sweeping the world with, with attention. Um, I know Dr. Peter Atia said that it's the only question he gets right now about drugs and medications from patients and friends and family. And he even said it's, it's just, it's the most talked about drug right now, uh, this year. He even started discussing it back in, uh, 2020, but now there are a lot of people with, with information online. Some of this, uh, I'm going to really keep basic because I think you'll, you'll find some of this everywhere you look. But let, let me start with the fact that this is nothing new. You know, we're we're encountering new classes of drugs with different mechanisms of action. Um, but this goes all the way back, probably even before the 50s and 60s, where they just started using things like caffeine and amphetamine-based drugs, even over the counter, to just simply reduce appetite. You know, they started looking at, at any kind of pharmacological enhancement that might help. Obviously, you know, that's about the time weight loss started picking up, you know, especially through the 70s and the 80s. Uh, and that's probably why I'm going to skip all the way down here. To, you know, this is almost as an afterthought, this last little class of drugs uh, were the fentermine or fentermine, you know, fen-fen type things, which, which are basically amphetamine derived compounds. Uh, some of them have been taken off the market uh, because of cardiovascular risk, uh, vasoconstriction, heart disease, or, or not heart disease as in arteriosclerosis, but just you know uh, cerebral vascular accidents and that sort of thing. Uh, and again, that's just a stronger type of appetite suppressant. So you're going to have a lot of the same kinds of side effects that you'd even see with things like Adderall. Uh, constipation, dry mouth, insomnia, dizziness, uh, some some disorders of you know the thyroid and the pancreas, but not that those are not effective any longer. They still have that appetite suppressant type effect, but the world has moved on to an entire different class of drugs that are just simply more effective uh, and and more direct. So I wanted to mention that as a little bit of a starting point. And then I'm going to, you know, some of these are a little one-off type things. Like you may remember Orlistat, <laughs> which is something that, you know, is, is directly more, um, you know, to try and reduce fat absorption, kind of like a fiber type thing, uh, you know, on steroids, quote unquote. So you, you end up with things like diarrhea and gastrointestinal distress, you know, rare cases, severe liver damage. Um, those, those kind of things just don't interest me. They're, they're very gimmicky. Um, then there are some that even are a little bit more in the neurogenic class, uh, you know, things that are just antidepressants or drugs that have been used to decrease uh, 
anxiety and uh, you know compulsion type disorders, alcohol and drug dependence. So those have had a, a little bit of a of an inroad. And interestingly, some of the more popular ones, what's really taking over right now, have some of those same effects with some of that same mechanism of action, but just better because they're they're much more gastric based. I can't remember what this one was. I didn't look that one up. I wasn't not familiar. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna no. skip this. Oh, go ahead. It's Belvic. It's off the market now. Okay. What do you not remember why it was off the market? Cancer risk. Okay. There you go. Early 2020s, I believe. Boy, it didn't jump out at me. So I'm going to skip all these GLP-1 uh, drugs here because that's what we're going to spend most of our time talking about. I'm going to sneak down here just to uh, metformin because I think that's that was the next step up and it still remains uh, kind of high in its viability. But I just want to kind of touch on that and, and then move on to what we're going to spend most of our time today. Uh, it, it decreases blood sugar through absorption. Uh, it actually, you know, because it, it inhibits your liver's ability to convert glucose into energy, you end up urinating more of it out. Uh, it's still, it, and therefore that improves insulin sensitivity. It still has a place. If you remember me talking about Dr. David Sinclair, Harvard uh, biologist who does a lot of research on longevity, uh, he literally made the statement that everybody on the planet should be on a low dose of metformin, you know, just for that reason, just, just to make sure you have a small ability to just keep insulin levels down and so forth. He takes it. Uh, but again, I, that's not necessarily going to do a lot directly for body fat loss. So let's turn our attention to what is right now getting all of the uh, focus, which are the Ozempic is, is what most people are uh, speaking about, but then Wagovi and some other ones, uh, some some were precursors, some are kind of upping the ante a bit. But these uh, glucagon um, mimickers are are peptides. So let's let's talk first about peptides because I think for anybody here watching this as a layperson, you 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 really want to know what this is all about. Is it for me? Is it something I should be interested in? What are the side effects? I'm going to speak less about the biochemistry, less about the pharmacology, although I know we need to wade through some of that. That's why we have some some great uh, people here to assist. But as a uh, as a glucagon-like peptide, these are smaller versions of proteins that are hormones or hormone mimickers or or uh, you know, create some synergistic effect with hormones. Your body recognizes these things as normal and natural. So it it has a more uh, direct and predictable effect. It's not reactive like you would think of a normal medication. You, you use this medication to cause something. Uh, it's just, it's much more, uh, I'll use the word again, synergistic. And I think therefore safer in most instances and so there are some people, uh, I, I listened to several doctors, uh, uh, you know, from endocrinologists to, you know, people who are really into longevity medicine, you know, say that this is probably going to just take over the entire field of pharmacology. There, as of a year ago, there are about 50 known peptides that you could literally 
you know, order, your doctor could prescribe, you can inject. And now I think there are far more. And again, they're just finding that there is such a direct, direct impact with, with fewer side effects. Now, the side effects are not nothing. Uh, matter of fact, they can be very significant for some people. But let, let, me, let me explain a little bit about just insulin and glucagon because we've talked about the insulin model and how that's not necessarily the driving, um, you know, end-all, be-all model of obesity and so forth, but it certainly still has its place. Just the state of obesity, uh, fat, including saturated fat and trans fats, sometimes has more impact than sugar, uh, even with, or carbohydrates, uh, even with diabetics, type 1 diabetics and so forth. So you can't just myopically say everything is about sugar and insulin and so forth. But this is one of those places where it's it has at least the initial impact of a cascading effect. So I remember when I was 27 years old, had just finished my first doctorate in nutrition, and I was creating information to try to explain nutrition to clients. And, and again, kind of coming out of those 90s insulin model era, I had this huge chapter in my first book about insulin versus glucagon, these you know, paired hormones that, that have opposite effects. Uh, insulin drives energy storage. When blood sugar goes up, insulin is produced in the pancreas, brings blood sugar down, brings it down by storing. And the hero of the story is glucagon because that's the, the retrieval hormone that, that signals for uh, fat cells and, and glycogen to unbundle, to, to release glucose. And then, you know, you have energy. And if you have more glucagon present, it's because you're in a calorie deficit and therefore you're in a, in a fat loss mode. So it's a little counterintuitive to realize that these GLP-1 uh, peptides are something that increases insulin. So you're going to increase insulin and decrease glucagon, and that has a fat loss effect, which is exactly the opposite of the way I just biochemically described it. But there are a couple more steps in it. It's not just acting on uh, the pancreas and, and how things are being released between those two hormones. It's also, therefore, having some effects on the receptor sites of the target organs and tissues. And if you go one step further, so as an, as an insulin or, or a glucagon, I'm sorry, an, an insulin mimicker, it tells your body, it signals your body, insulin is high, even though it's not really, it's synthetically being uh, introduced through this drug that's injected usually once a week. And therefore, a lot of things happen in your body. Uh, you're, you, you do keep blood sugar lower. That's one side effect. That's why all the, these drugs, these all started as, as diabetic medications. Now they're being FDA approved one at a time with appropriate testing for weight loss and obesity. But they also directly impact your hypothalamus, which as you know, controls hunger cues. And there are also some very targeted receptors in your gut itself so that you literally slow down digestion. You get a, a barometric sensation of fullness. And so some of the side effects because you are slowing down digestion include stomach paralysis, vomiting, uh, I'll explain that in a second. 
uh, constipation, diarrhea, that sensation of fullness, which a lot, which, which a lot of people don't like, you know, the, the sense of being um, bloated, you know, people say often. So you can have all of these side effects depending on dosage, depending on your, uh, you know, just genetics and phenotype. And uh, some doctors say these can be up to about 20%. So it's not a small chance. There's a pretty good chance you're going to have some of these side effects. Uh, some physicians are finding that people kind of outgrow them. Uh, some do not. There are cases of women who have taken taken these drugs like Ozempic for an entire year, and now they just can't stop vomiting. You know, they're off the drug, they've lost their weight, and they're just spontaneously vomiting four or five times a day uh, because they have literally, you know, paralyzed parts of their GI system. So, this is still not something for you to take lightly because these are powerful, even though they're somewhat, you know, quote, natural, um, you know, there, there's reason to, to tread cautiously and even something like, uh, let me see which one. So um, where is it? Wagovi. That's the one that, that has already been uh, approved for weight loss and obesity. And it's in higher amounts than even Ozempic was approved for but you don't have to take those amounts. You know, you can start slowly and that sort of thing. Again, obviously prescription drugs. Uh, most of these are injectable. Uh, you know, they're, they're trying to get some that are in oral form. But um, another thing that I thought was interesting, I'm going to actually scroll down here to some of my notes just so I don't forget anything. Uh, there were a couple physicians or researchers that, oh, by the way, some of these side effects, you know, please don't, don't skip over these. Um, there are drug interaction cautions. There are some of these where, um, you know, you have suicidal ideation and high instances, high ish of actual suicide. Uh, if you're pregnant or become pregnant, you can have severe birth defects and all kinds of things. So again, not to be taken lightly, but one of the researchers that I listened to said that a, a huge factor in I did not verify this. It's something I want to look at as a part two for next week is that these, these peptides in general, and, and some of them that are very neurogenic, there was one um, neuro researcher who was using all kinds of different peptides with patients because they have shown over time, you can literally double the amount of dendrites in your, you know, your neurons. And so you're, you're able to uh, you know, fortify your brain against Alzheimer's, even reduce plaque if you have the beginning of, of Alzheimer's and dementia and so forth. So, so really, really interesting things for peptides. GLP-1 is just one of many of several classifications. But one of the things that uh, was discussed was that they literally change your phenotype. They, it, these can change your DNA. Totally not known at this point, but all of these effects that can make your body more resistant to diabetes and all of those effects of, of obesity, they think there is a good chance that once you are off of these drugs, you could have a long-standing change that, that disallows a high instance of recidivism. So right now, one of the cons or one of the things talked against some of these drugs like Ozempic and, and Wagovi is, well, oh, sure. You're just, you know, people are getting uh, 
appetite suppression, their hunger's going away. It's affecting the gut and the brain, hypothalamus and all this stuff. Just wait until they stop taking it. Everybody's going to gain all of their weight back and it's going to be a big joke. Maybe, but you know, maybe some of these people are right about, about, you know, phenotypical change and it could really be something. Uh, it's something for, uh, you know, future research, I guess. Uh, another interesting thing is that, um, like I said about one of those drug classes that has been used for uh, addiction and, and so forth that they found had some uh, eating secondary side effects. Likewise, this, which is targeted for hunger and satiety and so forth, they have crossover effects into other compulsive um, behaviors. So people who have maybe had other addictions they take this for weight loss and they find all of a sudden they have no appetite for those risky behaviors and addictive behaviors. So um, another really interesting crossover. Uh, one physician researcher described the fact that this class of drug, this kind of peptide, because it was actually looked at initially as brain and neuronal anti-inflammatory um, medication, they still consider it that the, these are incredibly anti-inflammatory in nature. And so they think some of these changes in the GI system are actually secondary effects from that. And so you're protecting your brain, your hypothalamus, you're, you're again, improving those, those neurogenic changes, dendritic uh, increase um, in, in, you know, quantity and size. And so they think, it's just almost allowing your brain to act better, to perceive things with more control. And so, again, that's a really interesting preliminary uh, and kind of primary uh, facet to this. Uh, I already kind of went over what peptides are, uh, went over that, went over all that stuff. All right. So. Uh, as I said, I wanted to really kind of introduce this, lay this out in as much of a layman's uh, vocabulary as I could to create a framework. And I know, uh, as Kevin has already jumped in to clarify some things, uh, we have other people on the, the phone here. Uh, Stacy Lang is a biomedical engineer. Uh, Amy, uh, are you a physician assistant, Amy? I can't remember if you're an NP or PA. Uh Either way, way smarter than me. So I'm going to kind of turn this over to them one at a time just to kind of fill in some gaps. And I think they're going to have a lot uh, deeper insight into some of these. So Amy, uh, go ahead and jump back in there if you don't mind. I know you you were going to answer me there if you have time. I don't know if my microphone's working. Can you guys actually hear me? Yep, I can. Yeah, okay, perfect. I unplugged it and plugged it back in and that seemed to fix it. So one of the things I'm surprised you didn't put muscle loss as a side effect of some of these uh, GLP-1 medications, you know, I think that that kind of goes back to our bigger discussion of obesity in general. People can lose a lot of weight, but if in some of these studies, they show with people that are in the obese and overweight category, you know, that up to 30% of their weight loss is actual muscle loss on DEXA scan. You know, so I think that's something that just as a, you know, if we look at this as like, is this a miracle drug that's going to cure obesity? I mean, obviously, if we have a bunch of frail muscle wasting people in the end of this, that's no cure. And that doesn't change kind of the root cause of why those people became obese, even though there does show some definite like neurologic component of these drugs, for sure. Um, 
you know, there there is a little bit of a conundrum there with your general population with weight loss being equal across the board, which it doesn't seem to be. But the titration of some of these medications, what I find so fascinating, you know, in studies and with the drive to make some of them um, on-label use for weight loss versus just Wagovi um, being on on label because people want more, right? What I've seen in a lot of research on these, people will be on them for, you know, let's say a plus over a year, you know, six months, a year, and they start seeing like, well, well, the, the side effect of the hunger suppression is wearing off. And so they're wanting more all the time. And then you look at the studies and like, oh yeah, the most weight was lost at these massive doses. However, being an intelligent you know, person understanding how titration works, that would be like taking a study of people and saying, what's the most like strength you can gain on testosterone supplementation? Well, of course you're going to get the most with the highest dose, but is that actually safe? And is that really a physiological level of that drug to have in your system? Um, so I think that's really what needs to be fettered out with a lot of these. I think they have very aggressive titration schedules because people are almost like pushing the limit of what can be expected of them. Like they want to have zero appetite for the rest of their life when that's not physiologically normal. You know, you need to have appetite mm -hmm. as a kind of as a protective mechanism. So I think that's where it's going to be interesting to see how they end up. If these come on on label for weight loss, how that's titrated and how that's dealt with once the side effect of the appetite suppression starts to wane. I mean, at some point you can't just keep pushing more of this medication because there will become, I feel like more and more of these side effects that perhaps wouldn't be there at lower doses. Um, that were you know, more in the physiological dosing versus these extreme dosages. Mm -hmm. Quick, uh, uh, quick, quick comment and question, Amy. Um, I mean, that is something I did not run across and I'll specifically look for it because your analogy of testosterone, for example, you know, there's TRT, which gets you up to, you know, normal to high physiological levels. Then there's anabolic PED use, which is super physiological to those people using the super physiological. It's obvious that you cycle and because they're endogenous and you need to let your body, you know, come off of that for many, many reasons. So it would be interesting to see if they find that with peptides because of the the degradation effects you mentioned there. I will say that one, one researcher did bring up the, the muscle loss and he said, it's, it's obviously extreme, as you said, when you're losing weight quickly and people have such a, a depression of hunger that there it's, it's, you're just going to be at a pretty aggressive calorie deficit as if you were on a medically induced, very low calorie diet of five to 700 calories those people are also going to lose a lot of lean body mass if they did it for a long time. But this physician said that that is all in general population patients that don't have a really high uh, instance of exercise. So with those who are training aggressively, there not only is not muscle loss, but the potential for muscle gain because of some other downstream effect. So you can, you can either have a really, really bad effect, or you can actually have a pretty good effect. Uh, but one more thing before I, I, I let you answer that question. Uh, I also wanted to bring up the fact that I kind of skipped this, uh, the next level, the next kind of generation of these uh, GLP ones are, or is uh, terzepatide, which Monjero is the trade name. And it adds GIP, which is a gastric inhibitory peptide. So you end up using less of the GLP dose. 
and you add this to kind of magnify the effect, and they're showing in preliminary research, it's actually more effective than Wagovi and Ozempic, but it, it goes to what you're describing, which is you don't have to use as much of the GLP. So again, already starting to compound as pharmaceutical companies want to do. Everybody wants to get their own patents and have something better. Uh, and the, you know, quote, free markets impact of that may be better findings. Um, anyway, I'll, I'll turn it back over to you to kind of address that with the titration and so forth. Yeah. And there are actually, you know, even further generations. I mean, these GLP-1 medications have been on the market since like 2014 mm -hmm. uh, for diabetes management. And, you know, the the side effect of weight loss, you know, was not seen until they were kind of changed in their makeup a little bit, but there are definitely like tripeptides that are coming out as well. You know, they're dual peptide with the trisepatide and there are tripeptides that are coming out uh, that, you know, of course, everybody, we're always searching for more as humans, we kind of are always searching for more, but I do agree that the studies of trained athletes or trained individuals on these treatments or on these peptides are definitely convincing that there can be some protective benefit. And I think for muscle specifically, because they have the diet component in check, you know, you hear a lot of these anecdotal stories of people who haven't really changed their diet, you know, or they're drinking alcohol while taking these medications and don't understand the gastric delaying effect. Like when you are drinking alcohol and it's, it's slowing down, trickling into your system slowly, your body eventually thinks that you are having a massive quantity, even if you're not because of the delayed kind of trickle effect that it's getting, it can cause you to become violently ill, you know, really rapidly and eating really fatty foods. Like some of these things are, I mean, the people who took Allie, right. The, the oralistat, I mean, those people learned really quickly, like if sure way to have a horrible day is to eat any fat at all, because mm -hmm. it will be rapidly ejected from your system. And like, you can still buy Allie at the grocery store. Like it is an over the counter thing. So I think that, you know, hopefully what we'll see is a, a better narrative around these drugs are not miracle weight loss that they do help in people that you know have certain you know look at general population you know these inabilities to kind of rein in their quantity of intake you know that will help with that but if you don't also address the quality of the intake that's when you're going to run into issues with side effects with muscle loss you know some of these other negative things we don't want to see super fascinated to see, hopefully, you know, where, where this kind of started with looking at GLP-1 therapy for the neuroprotective benefit. I mean, there's some really great studies there in mouse models. They haven't shown this effect in humans with stroke recovery. You know, hopefully a side effect maybe of finding these like tripeptides and other things for weight loss will be the neuroprotective benefit. There is also a cardioprotective benefit of these as well. And some of that's because of their extreme anti-inflammatory properties, as you mentioned. So really exciting things there, you know, and it does kind of challenge our look at what weight loss versus fat loss kind of looks like in a broader population, but also in trained individuals, you know, how this could be useful for, you know, helpful, you know, maybe addressing like body composition and settling points to people who have lost a lot of weight, you know, helping them maybe maintain a lower weight moving forward. I do think that for most people, <laughs> who are looking at them only to like get the maximum benefit in a general population that they're, they're always going to be at some point hitting the wall. Like, just like you do with uh, steroid use, you know, there, there's always going to be people that are right up against the wall looking for more and it's going to be hard to, to get it at some point. Like, you know, like push your body so far into these extreme states with, with drugs or medications. 
Yeah. And, you know, to your point, even with bariatric surgery, gastric bypass, et cetera, you know, there are people who still eat their way back into obesity. And so, um, you know, some of these just may not be for everybody. Matter of fact, one of these drugs is for people with a couple different types of genetic disorders they had to make a derivative drug for. I'm, I'm going to say my comments about the behavioral aspects of this toward the end. Uh, Stacy, if you cannot speak, you know, feel free, uh, but I, I see your chat here. And as a somebody who has worked in the pharmaceutical industry as a biomedical engineer, I know you have some great insight. Uh, I do agree with your point that, you know, a lot of these were developed for diabetes, a side effect being obesity. And now they they still have to go back through, you know, phase one, two, three clinical trials to test them for obesity, you know, look at look at effects that are a little bit different, perhaps. So uh, feel free to jump in. Oh, okay. You unmuted. Well, I wish my, I was just on the phone with um, um, some people from Eli Lilly. And of course, you know, they discovered insulin and this is a very hot topic. Um, our doctors at the clinic are leading a study with one of their products, the Mangerno um, that's coming out in uh, the effects of obesity on cardiovascular disease development. And I think the bigger picture is obesity and the ability of doctors to treat it. It's only covered by insurance companies if you treat it as a disease, mostly by having bariatric surgery. If our doctors want to write for one of these medications to treat someone's obesity, they cannot unless the patient has type two diabetes. So our doctors are using one of these drugs. They're using the Lilly drug now and putting that, um, Dr. Steve Nissen, you can look it up. He's got a, a study going right now <clears throat> um, to show in all of the patients, none of them have type two diabetes and they're all clinically obese to show the court, the scientific correlation between obesity and cardiovascular disease, because just like high blood pressure or blood pressure and, and cholesterol, those things you can treat as, as something to reduce your incidence of increasing your risk for, or developing more cardiovascular disease. This is not an indicator even though we all know obesity leads to this, there's no scientific proof. And so these insurance companies will not pay for these drugs if for standalone, unless you have type two diabetes. So he's running the study to show that there is a scientific correlation between obesity and cardiovascular disease risk. Because as much as we have reduced the smoking rates in our country, and brought down our overall cardiovascular disease risks associated with smoking, we have upended every step we've gotten with obesity in the last couple of years. And he's, he talks on this all the time because he's like, we have thrown away all the progress we've made with obesity because it doesn't happen overnight. It creeps up, it creeps up, it creeps up. And then, you know, what you weighed at 35 years of age, now you're 45 and you're clinically obese and all of these other risk factors play a role in it. And so I think, you know, 
there's certainly people using these for weight loss, but there's an actual legitimate reason to use these for some of these patients that we need to, because the cost of treating obesity and all the other diseases that come with it is going to be so much more than us trying to bring it down and doing a surgery. Like you said, that's not the answer, but that's the only thing that's covered. And we're all like kind of stuck by the um, rules that were given by the insurance companies. So, I mean, I love that topic and I could talk all day about those social impacts and ramifications um, because the conundrum is in a free market insurance driven medical system, only industrialized modern nation without universal health care of any sort, even just basic universal health care. The companies, and I'm not saying this is wrong or horrible, but it's the answer somewhere in the middle. They say we must charge these insane prices so that we can afford to keep having these great discoveries, um, even though we're something like in the 30s in actual, you know, healthcare statistically among even third world countries. And so they they drive these prices up. And so you need, you know, twenty thousand dollars a month for a Remicade infusion or fifteen hundred dollars a month for an Ozempic uh prescription. Insulin was hundreds of dollars a month until this current administration you know, decided to just executive order cap it at like 30 bucks a month. And then you, you nobody can afford it unless you play those games in it. But, but, but Joe, look at the study, look at the fat millions of dollars on a study to prove obesity can lead to cardiovascular. Like this is yeah. another waste <laughs> of our money. Right. To, to be able, when we all, it's common sense. So, so here's the hack that it forces us to do. And this was, this was my point is it makes doctors and patients have to almost create their own little black market. Like, you know, you said you can't get this unless you have type two diabetes. And I know to prove type two diabetes, it's all driven by your, your blood sugar levels, which of course you have a 12 hour fast. I would never tell anybody to do this, but I wonder what would happen if you ate popsicles all night and drank you know, Pepsi, you know, right before your, your blood sugar test. And, oh my gosh, I have type two diabetes. My doctor can now give me a prescription. Uh, doctors can create diagnoses for a lot of things without the metrics. You know, there's some gray area. Um, you just need that, that diagnostic code, but anyway, I'm not going to, th that's not about this. Uh, yeah. I mean, private compounding, et cetera, again, but that would be out of your, your pocket. Um, so, I mean, great, great, great comments. I, I want to answer one question real quick. I'm going to probably ask you, Stacy, and maybe even Kevin and Amy, um, you know, is there an actual physiological rebound effect after coming off of a GLP-1? Or is it just, as I would guess, logically, due to hunger and so forth increasing, but is there any kind of a physiological rebound we're aware of? Nothing in the research that I have seen. They have an extremely long half-life. So I think that that's part of it with people like, oh, like it was two weeks later, then all of a sudden the hunger came back. It's like, no, it's been slowly coming back. Um, I think that's why, again, titration up and down is really key. Uh, and maintenance doses, you know, for, for some, I mean, like Stacy was saying with things like high blood pressure and other conditions that we kind of treat chronically, you know, we just assume that these are chronic conditions and need to be treated for life. 
um, obesity, absolutely. There are people who will struggle no matter what, even after gastric bypass. So are there people who maybe need to be on a low dose with additional counseling and help for their obesity for the rest of their life? Yes. And if you abruptly stop it, um, yeah, the effect is going to slowly wear off, but when it wears off, you're going to know because it, it hasn't, I mean, the changes that it's made in the, you know, kind of neuroprotective components of your brain are maybe still there, but if you haven't retrained those habits along the way, you know, if you've, if you've kind of fought it or used it as a, as a cheat, you know, like you said, in your kind of, in your intro to intro to this, if you've just used it as a cheat and nothing else, and you haven't changed anything else in your life, then you're, you know, you haven't changed your habits, like using this medication with kind of repatterning and, and rethinking lifestyle choices and those kinds of things, I think is the, really the key component in truly treating obesity, because without that, when that effect goes away, it's not like you're rebounding. It's just gone. I mean, it, it's reverted back to where you were before. And if you've changed nothing with yourself, you revert back. In uh, almost to Stacy's point, I'm going to answer your last question here, Erica, about is this for obese patients or weight loss patients? You know, again, this whole classification of drugs was originally researched for neuroprotective mechanisms. They were looking at, you know, brain and, and neuron change. And then they found these weight loss effects as a side effect. Like, why are all these people in this study losing weight? You know, they're not hungry. They're not eating. Like, what's going on? So, you know, they screech over into another lane and start checking that out. Then you have to go through all kinds of new, um, you know, research to check that out. And uh, the interesting thing is, as these then started becoming researched for and patented for diabetes, Remember that specifically type 2 diabetes, a type 1 diabetic is going to need insulin. And some of these things like metformin may assist, um, but uh, uh, it's very, very different, type 1 and type 2 diabetes. Type 2 diabetes, again, just like Stacy said, may or may not be proven sufficiently in peer-reviewed studies in, in cell or nature or science journal, but it's one is leading to the other. I mean, you're, you're not going to really have type two diabetes unless you're probably obese. M maybe just you're lucky genetically and you're not obese. You're kind of an ectomorph who just has a horrible diet, but those are two super highly correlated things. So the type two diabetics and the, the obese, I think will, um, you know, have those same effects. Uh, and you say, so you're going to, you're going to ask questions specifically, Erica, feel free. Hey, yes. So, um, I'm I'm kind of working in the background. I wanted to hop on this call specifically because just of the the nature of our company and also I'll, I'll kind of be vague here, but the nature of my husband's company, he's in medicine and they do provide these drugs and other peptides uh, or will write prescriptions for other peptides at his clinic. And so uh, currently we haven't been accepting clients that have been on this drug because these drugs, because we've seen such a spike in weight gain afterwards. Um, and so what's happening here in my state is that we are, um, and again, like I said, I, I hopped on this call just, you know, because I saw the information that was sent out and those buzzwords. And so I'm not really, um, I mean, I'm paying attention to everything, but the obesity side of things and the, or the, uh, excuse me, diabetes side of things is um, kind of not really relative to why I hopped on the call. So what we're kind of curious about on our side of things is how we 
will treat clients once they come to us after stopping the drug or lowering the drug and they have this huge balloon in weight. So we are getting, like I said, we're getting, people are getting these privately compounded either in Oklahoma or from Texas Star Pharmacy or wherever. And, um, you know, doing it for weddings or crash diets or all the above. Right. Mm -hmm. And so then they stop the drugs and they call us and they say, Hey, so I lost 50 pounds on the drug. Woohoo, go me. And I've, I've now gained 35 pounds back in a matter of two months. And so from like a leptin, ghrelin, all those hunger hormones, um, I'm really curious to see what happens once you lower the dose, stop the dose. That's kind of where I was going with those questions. Gotcha. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure Amy will jump back in here, but that, that's where the titration comments come in. I, I'm not sure a lot of people, you know, physicians especially who are just getting this from drug reps and all of a sudden they're writing the scripts. Physicians are just not notorious for taking the time to really manage each patient's case to say, oh, here's what we're going to do. Let's reduce this. Let's do it this way. Let's have this long-term plan. It's okay. You're at the end, like you, you met your goal weight, boom, you know, your prescription's done. You don't need to take that anymore. And then I think you're just getting some of those behavioral effects. That, that's why one of the things I'll look up for next week, and Amy said she's not seeing it on her end in the research, is any true physiological rebound. Uh, even Dr. Atia, at least preliminarily, said that's they're not seeing that. And I think it's Dr. Seeds, William Seeds, who said he thinks there are there could be these phenotypic changes, and maybe it takes longer on it and then some titration uh, to, to make sure that you're you're actually improving uh, endogenous dynamics with that. So I, I think right now it's probably exactly what you said. And one of the researchers mentioned this as a specific group of patients, somebody with massive obesity that it needs to be treated as a disease, as Stacy mentioned, that's one classification. Type 2 diabetes already categorically in that medical care group. That's that's a group. People who say, "Hey, I want to lose ten pounds for this wedding. I want to look great." They're the ones who are just not taking it seriously, and they do it. Uh, maybe even a lot of actors and so forth, and then they go off of it, and they just don't have the skills, the behavioral skills to manage that. And so Stacy made the point, like obviously a low glycemic diet, they're just understanding calories, tracking. Look at you know the research we already know from the National Weight Control Registry and so forth. So you still need some kind of client education, just as if they were having gastric bypass surgery. You don't just do the surgery and then let them out into the wild. They have to learn what they need to do after that. So I'm going to look up some of those things as well for next week. But uh, Amy or Kevin, any any thoughts on that? Kevin, I see you're unmuted. My two thoughts that come to mind is if. Clients, regardless of how they're labeled, obese, weight loss, gimmicky, you know, if they're going to take it for just a clutch, what do you expect? It's no different than any other, any other method on here. You're, if they take amphetamine, look at from a clinician standpoint, you shouldn't be taking longer than two months, but yet they'll just, you just, you pay your $90, here's your, here's your next round, see you in the next time, and they just continue doing it regardless of risk. And, uh, well, the fact should hopefully be there, but nonetheless, it's just a matter of, you know, the the rebound effect is certainly going to be higher for those type of clients because they're that's their expectation and they're just going through the motions. But um, 
you know, from obesity as a disease to parallel to uh, hypertension, just because you take hypertension and you see low blood pressure or normal blood pressure, that doesn't mean just stop it because, okay, you're normal blood pressure today, therefore you're treated, you're done. The same could be applied to the to obesity. Just because you have lost weight, that doesn't mean that you're just, you know, that, and this is the importance of titration. You don't necessarily stop it. You could, but it depends on risk, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. But um, I think that's where endocrinologists or obesity specialists are best uh, best position to handle these just because they're going to be able to manage this appropriately and analyze those risks versus just PCPs who are just giving it and not really evaluating every risk and progress, et cetera. But yeah, I want to say that. Well, I do fear Kevin too. I mean, that's not going to be an isolated thing. I'm, I'm going to just say like, those are, you know, the very unserious clientele or patient load coming in and they just want that quick fix. That's their mentality. Like you said, what do you expect? I think a lot of people who struggle with obesity for a lot of different reasons could also get to the end of the road. They've lost this weight and they just underestimate how difficult it was to manage their weight prior. And so I, I, completely understand a high rate of recidivism for that reason. I currently have three that I know of, three of my own clients who have struggled enough that they are now on uh, a GL1 or, or uh, a GLP1 uh, agonist and with great success, you know, and here's what I hope. These are people who have worked with me. So they have some great skill building time already. You know, they they know the struggle. They've lost weight. They may have gained some back. They may have, you know, just kind of skipped along the surface of the water, gaining, losing, gaining, losing. Um, and they take it seriously. And they went this route because as a way to protect their health, as as Stacy was alluding to, it's like in most physicians and researchers who are pro this, you know, they say this is saving lives. And uh, just like weight loss, if it takes a little time to get it right, if if you you start to gain a little back and you have to come back on or something like that, and and it, it you take that client education seriously the next round, you know those are still probably better outcomes than just not doing anything. And so I have always told people in the safer uh, weight loss medications, if if you've really tried, you really know what you're doing, and we not all of us can really understand what it's like for somebody else, what their genetics are like, their hormonal base, what they're really feeling when it comes to hunger and this entire neurogastric loop phenomena. Um, you know, maybe this does get you to that point and then we have to figure out how to maintain it, but at least it gets you to that point of much better health. So any, any thoughts on that, uh, Kevin? Um, it would, it I mean, it's, 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 Disease is a progression. It's a scaffolding, multifaceted approach in healthcare. So as as simple or as much as we would love it to be that simple of just eat less, move more, you're done in two months. And maybe it's not realistic for most, let's be honest. But to that point, it's why it's both. This is a tool. Medications is a tool. Surgery is a tool. Throw what you can get if they, if they lose weight. I don't want to say how they lose weight necessarily, but still outcomes are going to be better if you just simply lose weight better than what you were previously, then recalibrate what's going on, what's the context, what's the circumstance, 
with the skill set that needs to be developed habitually, medically, both nutritionally, all of that. And that's why it's so multifaceted and collaborative in nature because it's complicated. It's not, it's not easy. Um, anyone who says it is or doesn't need that, fuck them. Like that's just, they're just full of themselves because it's, it's hard. It takes a lot of work. Yeah. And, you know, before I ask Stacey and Amy for any, any final comments, they want to, uh, inject I, I i will say anybody who thinks again like like we we keep talking about obesity as a disease if you're not on that side i i think it's just too superficial of an understanding because a, a couple million years of hominin evolution uh in in mass scarcity and fighting for resources and then all of a sudden in the last 100 to 200 years we now have more abundance where people are dying of overeating instead of undereating just genetically, we are not equipped to deal with this kind of abundance. And it's just hard, you know, for those of us who are a little bit more successful, you know, that we are managing our weight, we we may love exercise and fitness. And so we're engaged in that, uh, you know, great. Maybe we have a lot of external circumstances or even internal physiological, um, you know, uh, contexts that are just better for that. But to say that somebody who struggles or who is overweight or obese is simply not exerting the same level of will and it's not a disease, it's a choice, it's just really, really wrong and, and unsophisticated. So so I, I hope you would reconsider that and, and really look at this as something that is beneficial for all of society to use all of the tools, as you said, Kevin, um, and and figure out how to employ them. Uh, it's it, we do it with everything else in the world, you know, all kinds of technology. We have to figure it out. We have to we have to learn how to deal with it as a society. This is one that's paramount with health. But uh, again, I, I knew, you know, as soon as I got into this, I was not going to have a, a great presentation to kind of wrap up with a bow and be done with one. I think we're going to be able to maybe get into some some better levels of organization next week. But anything that you wanted to say, Stacy, I see you're still unmuted as we wrap up. Oh. I just, I think that just based on, I had a call with Dr. Nissen this week and, you know, so, you know, the, the way that the, they function here, it's a team of teams. And so they literally all work together and they cross over into different specialties. And he was saying that in the different, um, cardiologists are going to have to start learning more and using these drugs more, understanding the titration and, and the role more. And then um, he taught, he referenced a, another study that they did on lifestyle changes that was done a long time ago. And so they, they, he, they talk from a place of multiple angles coming at this, not just one fixes all but they also recognize that they have to show for everybody else to get covered because sometimes it's it's easier for them to get the coverage for stuff that other people can't because of what they represent but it's still it's um it's it's there's a lot to learn yet and we're just at the tip of this and there's going to be more coming out is definitely what i heard from him he cannot wait for this to be done cannot wait for it to be unblinded he cannot wait for the next one that's coming out because he said it is better than all of them. Good. As we would expect, right? It's like, it, I, like it, it's so logical and yet you need a study to prove it. 
it's probably the easiest thing to prove, but so teed up that way, I'm I'm excited to hear you say that. I'm sure it is going to be very definitive. Very good to know. Uh, Amy, anything from you? I really appreciate your comments uh, all throughout. One more thing, and I know Erica got off, but in listening to people who have come off of these GLP-1 medications, it's interesting to hear what they say about their reasonings behind it, because it's not that they are satisfied with their weight loss for all of them or even side effects. I heard one more than one person talk about the reason they're coming off is because they miss enjoying food. It's that hedonic thing in our mind, right? Like they had some vacations coming up and wanted to enjoy food because their appetite was so deeply suppressed that they couldn't even enjoy food. So I found that to be very interesting. Sorry, Dr. Barnes, probably very interesting. And it, it goes to more to the point of you can get someone to lose weight, but if you have changed nothing else in their life, you have not really helped that person because they don't understand how to maintain it. They're going to rebound because the the suppression was so temporary and not something that they really wanted, right? They didn't really want to change forever. They wanted to change for now. And then, oh, wait, now it's back. It's like somebody coming off of contest prep who, who gains weight and just wants to go right back into contest prep because that's the only way they knew to feel good or lose weight. Same thing. You know, that cycle will continue until the person is given the tools to really truly manage their disease, as you as you noted, and most doctors, ninety nine probably percent of regular doctors are not equipped to handle that type of complexity. You know, the doctors who specialize in obesity management and endocrinology and other more specialized fields, absolutely. But your run of the mill GP or internist has no idea what to do with a person who now went off a medication that was helping them lose weight to treat other medical conditions, stopped it because they want to enjoy eating ice cream again. Exactly. Where do you go with that? You know, it's so complex. You know, you, your your last point, I'll close with this. One of my clients taking a, uh, a semaglutide is, it has said the same thing. Like, I, I, I can't eat. Like, I'm just so not hungry and I'm forcing myself to eat one meal a day and it's hard to even do that. And so she went back to her doctor to talk about that. And again, it could be dose. Um, could be just her body's response, but yeah, to your point, it, it, you know, the impact on hunger because of the, the enteric neuronal complexity and and the, the direct gastric, you know, work in the hypothalamus, it's, is it's really hitting all things you can hit. I think we're very close to it. It's incredibly powerful. And because of the high instance and some seriousness in some of the side effects, it does give me this thought for anybody who's contemplating it like, oh, wow, I'm, I'm here. My friend just took Ozempic and lost 50 pounds. Like, I'm going to go ask my doctor. Maybe just try to do some of those things on your own first. Like like Kevin said, move more, eat less, start fortifying your education in personal nutrition and, and, and health care. And maybe you can get a lot of this impact without the drug. And then you don't have to worry about the impact, the side effects, the the rebound. If you need something like this, again, it's we're, we're even though it's been 2014, 2020, currently this year with some of these patents being approved, like we're kind of on the front end, but you can still do this without it. I mean, you really, really can. So if you need the tool, maybe it's something to explore, but sometimes just being presented all this information, you can say, wow, if those are all the mechanisms this does, 
And yet I can do all of those things myself with my food and nutrition and, and exercise, then, you know, maybe that's the better path. So I will let you guys go. Uh, amazing contributions. I, I knew I would be the the dumbest person in the group. So glad you guys were here to make this worthwhile for everybody else. And next week, I'll try to pull some of these uh, new questions together and organize this a little bit more formally. But have a great weekend, everybody. Thanks again.